Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Cohen, and on today's episode, I have Zach Bitter. Zach is a world and American record-holding endurance athlete who has driven to find his limitations in a variety of environments. Zach is also a three-times national champion, three-times Team USA World 100-kilometer athlete, and coach who has who loves helping others achieve their best. Zach, thanks so much for coming on for an episode for today. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, man. So we were just talking a little bit off air there about your latest achievement and it's a monster. It just shocked me even more there when you told me the distance. So <laughs> if, if you wouldn't mind, just uh, introduce listeners to what um, one of the records that you just broke recently. Sure. Yeah, I guess um, it was just over a week ago at this point, but I was in a, at a race called the Tunnel Hill 100 Mile um, in Vienna, Illinois. Um, and it's a, it's a very flat 100 miler. And it's on this what they call like rails to trails type of setup where it used to be like kind of where an old railroad track was and they, they tore that up and turned it in kind of a crushed limestone trail path. Um, so I did, I went there just because historically I've done a lot of flat kind of hundred miler or like 12 hour type timed events. And, uh, I really kind of like that type of running. So I wanted to do what I would consider a flat hundred miler that wasn't on a track though. Cause all the ones I had done previously were on like these 400 meter loops essentially. Um, so this was kind of a new exposure to a kind of a similar training program, I would say, uh, in this one, uh, I, I ended up running it in 12 hours and eight minutes, um, which, uh, comes out to be about a seven minute, 17 second per mile pace. Um, and it is technically it's the fastest hundred mile trail time recorded. Yeah, I mean, that's just mind-blowing. And for any, any UK listeners or people who don't work in miles, I mean, that's you said 100, about 162 kilometers. Yes, yeah. I mean, you just ran that in a day and still broke records. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I always try to think of it because we tend to kind of normalize these things within the niche sport of ultramarathon running. It's like 100 miles and some stuff that just seems to be the thing people gravitate to in the United States. Um but, you know, a lot of people still kind of look at that, like, why would you do that? <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it's crazy because like I'm actually in, in about three weeks going to do a, a race here in Phoenix, Arizona called the Desert Solstice Track Invitational, where you see how far you can get in 24 hours. So um, that one will be a little different and just like you're just kind of trying to keep moving as much as you can for 24 hours and see how many miles or kilometers you can kind of pile up. And uh, the sport gets pretty crazy. They've got uh, events that go like that for six days where you see how far you can get in six days. And then it becomes, I think even more kind of like a chess match where you decide, well, what am I, when am I going to stop and eat? When am I going to, you know, take a quick nap and that sort of thing. And in the range between what guys and gals will do in terms of sleep and stuff in those is, is, is pretty cool to look at. But, um, yeah, you know, for now I'm sticking to 24 hours or less, I think. <laughs> <laughs> wow, man. So, yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on, I mean, not only just to share your hints and tips for anyone who wants to be an endurance athlete or even just try um, mm -hmm. what they can learn from yourself, but also um, just sort of what you've learned over the years, especially from a dietary perspective. Um, when you first began the whole endurance world, what kind of way were you eating then versus what you're doing now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I ran cross country and track in, in high school and college, and 
I, I guess if you want to so the way to look that I like to look at it is like, I kind of started taking it seriously from a holistic manner um, about my maybe first or second year in college. Uh, and I, what I said more to me by that is I started paying attention to like more than just, Oh, I'm going to go out and run or I'm going to do what the coach told me and run these, these uh, workouts and races and stuff. And I started looking at things like sleep and like what I was eating as well as the training. Um, so being kind of new to that, uh, I just kind of went towards what most endurance programs are going to kind of advocate for, which as I'm sure, you know, is, is typically a high carbohydrate approach. You'll see, uh, people recommending like 60, 70, even sometimes 80% of the dietary intake coming from carbohydrate. Uh, so I did that. And I like to say I did a very kind of, um, whole food, high carb diet. So it wasn't like a lot of junk. It was like, you know, junk, whatever that means, I guess. <laughs> but it was, you know, a lot of like um, single ingredient things like potatoes, fruits, vegetables, that sort of stuff. Um, and then uh, when I got out of college, I, I knew I wanted to keep running in some capacity, but I wasn't 100% sure kind of what to target. And the one thing I did kind of know for sure was I really enjoyed the long run as kind of my favorite workout of the week. So like the first the first year out of um, out of college, I started just kind of doing more long runs and less of anything else. And that kind of, I guess, probably steered me towards ultra marathons. Um, by late 2011, I was what I would consider kind of all in where I was training basically just for ultra marathons. And it was also kind of a point in my life where I started kind of noticing kind of the tolls that the sport can take on you. Um, I'd been running high mileage for quite a while, but this was the first time I had gone through kind of a training block where I felt like my sleep wasn't very good. Like I'd wake up multiple times a night to go use the bathroom and then it would take me like, you know, anywhere between 30 to 40 minutes, sometimes to fall back asleep after I'd wake up. Um, so it was like, I'd be blocking out like 10, 11 hours a night just to make sure I could get like eight hours of sleep. Um, and you know, so that was kind of a, I guess a early warning sign that something was off to me anyway. Um, you know, other, other things too, just like, you know, I was, I was working as a full-time teacher at the time as well. And just having big energy swings throughout the course of the day. Um, it just seemed like kind of like that the approach or what I was doing wasn't necessarily sustainable. And I think it would have been easy for me to kind of look at that and say, okay, what I'm doing from a training and racing side of things is, is just unrealistic. I need to just kind of like accept that. And if I want to be healthy and not, you know, just kind of a shell of myself when I'm in my thirties, um, I need to, I need to stop running as much, but I was really enjoying the training and enjoying the racing and just kind of getting into the sport of ultra money, ultra marathon running. So, um, I didn't want to take that route if I didn't have to. Uh, so I started trying to play around with some other stuff first. And the first thing I actually, um, tried was, uh, messing around with my diet a bit, uh, kind of at the same time I had started, uh, listening to a lot more podcasts while I was running as a way to just kind of learn as I was running. Cause at that time I was spending sometimes upwards to 20 hours a week running. So I thought like, this will be a great way to kind of rationalize doing that much running. At least I can learn stuff while I'm doing it. And I started kind of gravitating towards some of these like nutrition podcasts. And, uh, that's when I first kind of heard about like a high fat approach. Um, and you know, so I started looking into more of that and was really fortunate. I was able to meet guys like, you know, Dr. Volick and Dr. Finney. Um, and some of these guys who are kind of the, were like the early movers, I guess, in this modern high fat approach. 
so for me, it was at the end of 2011. So about almost exactly seven years ago at this point, um, I, I decided I was going to give it a shot and, um, I was, I was skeptical. I wasn't sure like what exactly was going to happen. And, um, it was, uh, pretty, I think typical of what you see a lot of times with kind of someone switching from a high carb to high fat diet. You have some of those early weeks where you feel like you're kind of, uh, moving about at the pace of molasses <laughs> and, uh, um, but it, 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 other parts of this, of my, my daily life, like improved pretty quickly. Like almost immediately I started sleeping through the night again, which I saw as a, is a big, uh, a big positive sign because historically before that year, I had always been a really good sleeper. Like when I was in high school and college, I would easily sleep through the night without waking up. Um, so when that went up, went kind of off, but that's, that was why that probably stuck out to me so drastically. Cause it wasn't like it was the norm or anything. Um, so like pretty, pretty quick, I started sleeping better. I started noticing my energy levels, um, were more consistent throughout the course of the day. And then after about three, four weeks, uh, my training started to kind of renormalize a bit too. And, uh, I was, I guess, smart about it in that I didn't try to implement it at like mid season or something while I was doing a lot of intensity workouts or anything like that. I, I very much started kind of playing around with it at the end of a season. So I was building back up some slow volume stuff so I could, kind of ease into it a little more without, uh, you know, I guess stressing my body from a dietary and a physical side of things too bad, too much. And, um, you know, I was, I was pretty sold on it at that point just cause, um, it, it's, it, it surfaced as such a change in the way, like just all sorts of things were kind of working for me. Um, and at that point it was just about, you know, figuring out like, well, what is the high fat diet in context of extreme endurance or even endurance for that matter? Uh, because I think it is a little different than say like your classical ketogenic approach that you're going to get like a pretty strict, um, 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrate a day. And then just not really deviate from that often or at all. Um, you know, for, for me, I see it being a little different just because when I am training upwards of 20 hours a week, that's a much different lifestyle. So, um, I like to call it a kind of a periodized high fat approach that is, um, kind of catered towards, uh, like a super active or very active individual. Mm-hmm. And so with that one there, it's it's not what most people would think of it as a ketogenic diet is what you're saying. It's um, you, you increased your fat intake, but did you find you still needed X amount of carbs though? Because just because of the amount of activity you were doing. Yeah. You know, it, it, it tends to range from my experience. I've, I've gone through these kind of like, N equals one tests like time and time again, as I've gone through different training systems throughout the last seven years. And usually what it comes back to for me is like when I'm kind of recovering from my goal race and either resting or slowly building up, that's where I can, that's when I feel the best and I'm just fine following a, a classic ketogenic approach with that, you know, basically no carbohydrate intake. Um, and then as I start adding more volume and starting increasing that, I notice like, um, if I don't up my carbs just a little bit, I'll start to kind of like lose a little bit of performance or lose a bit of motivation uh, to train at the level I want. So as I kind of go up in volume and intensity to the training rack, I bring my carbs up a little bit in comparison. Um, usually what that means is like during recovery phases, I'm, I'm under 5% carbohydrate intake. Um, when I'm in like kind of peak training, I might get up to 20 
rarely, but every once in a while hit like a 30% day intake of carbohydrate. Uh, over the course of the year, I probably average when you add in like all the recovery days, all the, um, like just low volume, low intensity sessions, and then couple that with the buildup towards the high intensity stuff. I probably average right around 10% carbohydrate, um, as a, an average intake throughout the course of the year. Uh, so it's very much low, um, low carbohydrate compared to what you're going to see in a typical, uh, endurance protocol. And do you have any sort of mentor athletes or someone else in the endurance world who was doing something before you so that you could learn off them or were you having just to figure the stuff out as you went? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's more people that were kind of doing it before I was, um, I wasn't real aware of a whole lot. Um, I know, uh, Tim Olson, who is, was, is an ultra marathon runner as well. He was the first ultra runner that I had heard was uh, playing around with it at all, but I really didn't know a whole lot about what he was doing specifically other than that he was following more of a high fat approach. And um, so like, I, I was like just kind of behind Tim in terms of uh, like his, he, he kind of got really popular in 2012, 2013 when he won the Western States 100 two years in a row um, and broke the course record at the time as well. So he was kind of someone who I was watching a little bit with that. Um, but yeah, I was, a lot of it was trial and error. Um, and you know, it wasn't something that I got into to try to prove a point. So for me, it was like, you know, what is going to work? What is going to make this sport sustainable? And, you know, so for me, it was get your body really, really fat adapted and then use carbohydrates kind of, or, or glucose for like rocket fuel at the right time. And for me, it just didn't make a whole lot of sense to be hitting that fuel source as often as you see in a typical endurance training program. Um, the, the way I use it or the way I try to break it down simplistically, I guess, is that you, essentially you have two fuel tanks on you. Uh, you one fuel tank, your body fat is essentially unexhaustible during an event. Um, so that's a fuel tank like that is is going to be available to you the whole time. And then you have your your glycogen stores, which are very finite relative. Um, so for me, it's like, well, which fuel tank do I want to take the most energy from and which one do I want to take the least from or use strategically? Uh, so that kind of made sense to me from that standpoint. And I think especially in ultra marathon running when we're going, you know, typically 10, 12, and then when you get into the hundred mile distance, especially on like mountain trails, you're going 20 plus hours. Uh, it seems it just doesn't seem to be necessary to be burning high levels of muscle glycogen and trying to restock that on the fly at the rates you would need to, to kind of stay on top of that for, for 20 plus hours. And when you were mentioning carbohydrates earlier, what's some examples for people with um, like, is it, are we talking rice, potatoes? What, what, what would you need? What would you fuel up on? Yeah. Uh, for me, like in, in day to day, like meals and stuff like that, you know, I gravitate towards a few that I found that just kind of work well for me for whatever reason. And that tends to be like sweet potatoes, regular potatoes, uh, melons, berries, raw honey, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I've, I've worked with other athletes in the past who they, they usually find something that they like that works for them. And, um, for me, I don't put a whole lot of, um, emphasis on exactly what it is from the carbohydrate source as long as they're taking it at their, as long as their timing is right. And it's, 
you know, working well for their own digestion. Mm. And are you doing this more um, pr- like pre or post or just um, just to time? Have you found there's a timing, um, the best time to take the carbohydrate too? Yeah, yeah. For me, it seems to be like advantageous to do it like right after a hard session and then maybe the, the night before a big session. So like if I have a big training week where I'm going to have a couple of workouts in there plus some high volume, um, you know, at dinner I might have like a couple sweet potatoes and then I'll go out in the morning relatively fasted. I might have some like coffee with cream, tiny bit of raw honey maybe. And then when I finish, I might have, uh, you know, some, a, a couple pieces of fruit or something like that. Uh, and that usually, usually the question that I ask myself is after this hard effort is the goal to get out and work hard again the next day, or is the goal to recover? And if the goal is to get out and work hard again the next day, or even later that afternoon, um, that's when I'll bring back a, a little bit of the carbohydrate. If the goal the next day or even two days is recovery, like really easy running or maybe even a rest day, that's when I'll, I won't put the carbs back. Uh, cause to me, it's more of a timing thing. Um, you know, I don't always think it's even as much an intensity thing. Uh, cause usually if you're doing a very intense training program, like someone who's, uh, like power lifting, um, you know, they're short bursts, like high intensity type stuff. Uh, you know, their workouts are so short in duration, they're not going to deplete their glycogen stores. Um, so then, and then they're typically not going to work out again for another, maybe 23, 24 hours. So for me, when it gets to be the time to be strategic about carbohydrates is when the time between sessions is short and the energy demand from each session is large. So that's when I find that I need to kind of bring back a little bit of carbohydrate to kind of speed up that process, or I guess hack in an extra work that I wouldn't maybe be able to do at a quality, quality way if I left the carbs out altogether. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing you must need a lot of calories in a day when you're training you need to eat a lot of food right yeah and you know that's the other that's the other thing i usually try to share with people too who are looking at using a high fat approach for whatever reason is context is everything like if you look at if you would just like kind of take a blueprint of what i'm eating and plug and play um it might not work perfectly for you just because you know there may be days where i'm burning two to three times my resting metabolic rate just due to the nature of how much how much training i'm going to do Um, so like I'm eating that way too. (laughs) I'm eating sometimes two to three times my resting metabolic rate. Um, so like for someone who's maybe training with like, say an hour a day or something like that, um, they might, they might not have to structure it quite the same way I do. Um, they might be able to go a little lower carbohydrate than I do. Um, but I think there's some individual variability there as well. So, um, a lot of times you have to kind of look at where your goals are and then be willing to adjust as you're kind of working through the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the reason I'm also asking um, with carbs and ketones is because recently I got to try some um, exogenous ketones, the ester, mm. and they were saying there for sports performance to take it with carbs. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, if have you ever even played with that kind of realm where you take exogenous ketones? You know, I haven't really played around with it too much yet. I've had uh, a couple of the companies who are, um, I guess, really trying to get a high-end uh, exogenous ketone to market, send me some kind of early samples just as they're trying to gather information. And the stuff that I've been sent, like, yeah, that's what they have said. Like, 
it's best using the presence of some carbohydrate because I guess in theory, what you're doing then is you're getting the best of both worlds. You have, you know, a, a higher level of carbohydrate in circulation, but you also have high levels of ketones. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Like I'm probably not the person to ask either, but I I'm, I'm waiting a bit to see kind of where that ends up falling out. Cause I think to some degree we've gotten out a little bit ahead of where, what, what the science really is ready to kind of, um, tell us about how that actually plays out in the field versus like kind of on a, like on a blood ketone strip type of setting. So, um, yeah, so I haven't done a whole lot with those yet, but I think it is a promising field and I think it's probably just something that they got to keep, keep working at before they figure out something. Um, and it some, seems like some people are having success with them. So, um, I'm never one to say you're doing it wrong. If someone says they're doing it right and they have the data to back it up. <laughs> Yeah, it just got me when you were talking about how you found, especially for the distance that you do, that you do need to get mm -hmm. that sort of happy medium between carbs and ketones. Um, it just, yeah, I was thinking, yeah, it seems like that's even where the science is looking, that you have to go that way. You just f happen mm -hmm. to figure that out on your with your own trial and errors. Yeah, you know, it's interesting too. I think, um, I think there is definitely still things to be learned about just what, what, like say an approach like I'm taking, or even a strict ketogenic classical clean ketogenic approach and how that kind of changes or how your body adapts over years. Cause one thing I have noticed since like essentially year one to today is that when I do go through some of those higher intensity training or higher volume training phases, uh, when I do like take a recovery day and drop the carbs back down, um, I, I tend to go back into ketosis or not even technically leave ketosis um, if we're looking at it as a 0.5 millimole or higher type of measurement. Um, in the past, when I first started doing like, you know, I would do a kind of a strategic carb day for a big workout and I'd come out of ketosis and then, um, you know, maybe it'd take a day or so before I'd be back into kind of that 0.5 millimole or higher. But this last training block I've done, I was more religious, I guess, about testing blood ketone just because I, I get asked a lot about it. So I feel like I should probably have some sort of, some sort of answer for folks. Um, and I was testing, you know, two, three, sometimes even four times a day through that kind of heaviest carb phase of my training. And there was very few times where I even actually dipped below 0.5 millimoles. I was more often than not at about 1.0 upwards to 2.0 millimoles. Um, so that makes me wonder like, really like how are we defining ketosis with athletes versus ketosis for someone who's trying to maybe use it as a way to manage their type two diabetes or epilepsy or something like that. Because, um, I guess by, if we're going to use a measurement as the, the clinical or as the definition of whether you're following a keto or a ketogenic diet, then I mean, you look at the data that I drew during that training session. I was very much, I guess, following a ketogenic diet from a, from a millimole standpoint and ketones. Mm -hmm. And so you've been eating a more high fat ketogenic kind of way since about 2011, it sounds like. And mm -hmm. the, the biggest takeaway I got from what you were saying earlier on is you noticed that change in recovery. So you were struggling with your recovery factor and, and noticing that with your sleep. So have you still found then even after all these years that you've been eating this way that you're, you've managed to keep that that good sleep quality going when you stay in a more ketone based way of eating 
Yeah. I mean, I would even venture to say that I feel like sleeping is one of my strengths as an athlete. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how people can stay in the sport for more than a year if they're not sleeping well, to be honest with you. I think it's, um, it's, it's mind boggling to me. Cause it's like, I, I know how good, how much better I feel when I get a really good night's sleep and I can kind of get that on a regular basis versus how I feel when I'm sleeping restlessly or maybe, you know, skipping out on an hour or two here and there for, a, for a couple of weeks at a time. So like, um, yeah, that's, that, that's something I'm, I'm fairly well convinced is, is a strength of the approach, at least for me anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. other people may have other experiences, but um, for me, like when I have that nutrition dialed in, I think that that really does correlate with the quality of sleep. And, um, you know, it's, it's not hard to like find it difficult to sleep. I think when you train really hard, cause you're asking so much of your body, it's almost like if you don't give it what it needs, then it's gonna, it's gonna respond in a, in a, in a negative way, which I think surfaces with how well you're sleeping or not sleeping. Yeah. And I think you listened to it very early on, which is a good thing. You caught, you know, you didn't let, let it last for years and years and years and end up in a burnout stage. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's what I always, that's one, one topic with sport that I'm really interested in. And I, I certainly don't have all the answers or any of the answers for that matter. But, um, you know, we, we tend to, whenever I have these conversations with folks who are convinced that, you know, the science is settled and that all endurance athletes, regardless of whether they're doing a 5k, 10k or a, you know, 24 hours should be doubling down on carbohydrate. Um, you know, they're, they're always wanting to point to, well, look at all the Olympic athletes, like the world record holders at, you know, Olympic distances. And you know, they're all following a high carbohydrate diet. And, and that may be true. But, you know, the other thing that we have that's very consistent with Olympic athletes, gold medalists, world record holders, is they tend to be in their 20s and 30s. Um, and it's one of those things where um, I don't necessarily want to look at the most robust population that has uh, gifts beyond what the average person has, and then a work ethic and an ability to get through those training blocks, make it through uninjured, and then use that as the gold standard for our kind of exercise performance protocols for for most people. Um, because there's countless other people that we just don't remember that maybe fell out of the sport at age 28 or you know, burnt themselves out at age 30 and, you know, had all the skills, all the genetic natural ability that some of these gold medalists had, um, but just didn't get through the training program for whatever reason. Um, and is that always dietary nutrition? No, but sometimes I have to think sometimes it is. And, you know, then the next question is, well, what would happen if we would have given them a different nutrition protocol that they hadn't tried? Would that have sustained their, their career or help them get through some hard parts of stuff like that? So I think it's, um, um, it's, it's definitely something that's worth looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you know, one of my thoughts too, um, when you've been in a sport, as long as you have too, would you go back to your 18 year old self or 21 year old self and then say, you've got to try this way of eating now? Mm-hmm. Or do you think when you were talking about the nuances again, that when you're in your late teens or early twenties, that is a is a more ketogenic approach a good approach do you think potentially or is it that is it only when you start going 25 and above or getting close to your 30s when you notice that change in sleep and recovery issues that that's a sign that you need to switch yeah um yeah that's a great question i think um you know for me personally i wish i would have started earlier just because i think that there's definitely a a 
like one of the things I'm most curious about is like, what are we going to see with, uh, you know, someone who does start at least a higher fat approach? I don't think with kids, it needs to be a ketogenic approach, but like mm-hmm. a higher fat approach so that their body is uh, more or less aware that fat is its primary fuel source. What does that person look like when they hit their mid twenties, thirties or my age and they have not seven years with it? Cause I still have a longer amount of time of my life spent eating high carbohydrate than I do high fat, even though I've been doing it for seven years. What happens when we get someone who's 30 and they've been following it their whole life? Are they even that much more resilient to being able to use um, glucose as kind of a, as more of a rocket fuel type of thing? Um, or are they be able to push higher intensities kind of into the phases of uh, or into a lower carbohydrate approach than I am? Like, are they even that much more kind of adapted, I guess? Um, so it's an interesting question. Um, I do think context plays a big role. Like even for me, if I were to go out and say, I'm going to try to run the fastest 5k I could possibly run and I'm going to spend six months training for it. I would structure my nutrition probably differently than I would when I'm doing a hundred mile training block. Um, so, uh, I think there's, there's a little bit of nuance involved when you're trying to do something that isn't necessarily like what I would consider like the epitome of a healthy lifestyle. Uh, I think people look at like running and they say, okay, running is healthy for you. It's good for you. And it certainly is. Um, but training for maximum performance, I think is at least a little bit of an uphill battle in terms of health. I don't think I'm extending my life by running hundred mile races. So like, um, I think that's when you have to kind of get a little bit creative with what you're eating in order to maximize performance. And I think that's a little bit different than say just just running and eating for pure health or longevity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I want to get into into even like joint health because that's one thing you know people are going to think about with runners. But before we get to that, um, I want to touch a little bit more on fat and then protein. So mm-hmm. fat-wise, do you have a, like a favorite source of fats that you like to consume to, to energize you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I tend to, I've, I've kind of changed a bit, I guess. I guess the one thing that's changed the most in the last seven years within my, the approach I'm taking isn't necessarily the macronutrient ratios, but more so like, um, kind of where they're coming from. Uh, and then if there is a shift in macronutrient ratios, the most is probably protein. Um, I tend to get most of my fat from animal fats. I eat quite a bit of really fatty, fatty meat, um, as kind of a staple in my diet. So a lot of that fat fuel is going to come from that. Um, I'll supplement with other things too, like uh, coconut oil, clarified butter, extra virgin olive oil, some seeds and nuts. I try not to do tons of those, but when I'm in high training, sometimes I'll have some of that in there as well. Uh, but yeah, that's usually the the bulk of it is from kind of those, some oils and then animal fats. Okay. And yeah, I mean, you do a podcast with uh, Dr. Sean Baker, who's been on the episode before. Um, and we all know Sean is a, is a carnivore, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a very strict one too. Uh, and so have you, have you recently changed to eat more protein then since w- with your journey too, versus maybe what you were doing even when you started in 2011 with a higher fat approach? Yeah, I guess the biggest way I've kind of done it is from a, I guess from more of a, just the way I kind of view it in the past, I was uh, you know, just kind of following what, what I think a lot of people assume is, is the right path where, you know, you can have like, you, you, you have to be kind of like keep the protein in a certain window, like don't exceed a certain amount of grams. 
um, per day, and but make sure you're also getting at least this much. And then that kind of changes by your activity level and your body weight and stuff like that. But um, more recently, I've just been a little more relaxed on that. I'm not nearly as concerned about, um, you know, taking in like a, a big bolus of protein all at once or, uh, you know, going over a certain threshold of protein. So just by the nature of uh, the amount of meat I eat in a day, I probably get um, at least 150 grams of protein, if not more on some days. So that's probably a little higher than it would have been in the past. I've done phases where I even tried to keep my pro had had tried to keep my protein at around 100 grams, um, and uh, you know that I just don't don't do that anymore. I, I didn't see anything from a way I felt as that being ideal or better, um, and I, I tend to feel better when I'm not as strict about that. So um, you know we've had uh, a couple cool guests on our podcasts, uh, Dr. Ben Bickman, um, Professor Stuart Phillips, uh, Ted Naiman. So a lot of guys who've been like kind of, uh, really looking into this whole protein situation and their, 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 their message is that, you know, it's not something that I should really be worried about. So I'm not afraid to let my protein drift up to 20% of my intake, if not higher some days, especially on recovery days. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, for you, something else when you talks about recovery, I'm guessing like uh, muscle soreness, stiffness, uh, those kind of factors. Is that something else that you notice when you tweak the way that you eat that influences that? Or would you say that's more just a hydration or a sleep thing? Yeah, you know, it's it's always hard to kind of tease out what's causing what with the you know with the amount of training and then all the other variables, like you said, like hydration and sleep and all that stuff. Um, but like if I had to try to put my finger on it, uh, you know, I, I feel like in terms of just like tightness in my legs, that tends to feel best when my carbs are the lowest. Um, you know, and when I, when I do bring them back, um, I, I tend to go, I, I err on the side of caution, I guess, in how much I use. Um, it's hard to always tease that out because usually when I do have my carbs at the highest, I'm also training my hardest. So that's when I'm most likely going to have a few more aches and pains. Mm. Um, and then when I'm, when I'm recovering, uh, it's, you know, I'm not doing quite as much if any damage to the, to my muscles and stuff. So then it's going to progressively be getting better. But, you know, one thing I have noticed is that when I, when I finish a, a goal race, and I'm really, really good about kind of dialing in my nutrition to where I think it needs to be during that recovery phase. I tend to get back into training quicker than I would have previously. And the, the best way for me to describe it is like uh, in the past when I would do more high carb or be like kind of relaxed or not necessarily follow my ideal recovery protocol um, post races, the first couple of weeks after, you know, I might take a few days off and then start doing some easy running and it'd be about two weeks before I would ever even think about doing anything outside of just some easy jogging. Whereas when I'm really strict for those, like maybe three, five, even seven days afterwards, I tend to kind of get that pop back in my leg a little quicker. It seems like for whatever reason, whether my body's kind of flushing out some of that swelling and stuff quicker when I'm not eating the carbohydrates. Um, I don't know for sure. But um, I can tend to kind of get back into full training quicker when I kind of have that that good that good low carb recovery protocol in place. Mm. 
And just talking again about longevity and being able to stay in the sport so long, you know, so I know a lot of marathon runners, they may have knee issues um, just because they're more running on tarmac all the time. But I'm also just thinking uh, like your running style. Are you sort of more like a minimalist shoe, barefoot kind of runner? Is that something else that you think has allowed you to run for so long? Yeah, you know, I've, I've definitely paid a lot of attention to that. Like almost the same around time I started doing kind of the high fat approach. I also started looking into like what is like a natural, natural like running, not as much technique as much as uh, like footwear. Um, I've gone through phase, I went through a phase where I went like very minimal where, you know, I was wearing just basically shoes that would have like a slab of rubber on the bottom. And now I'm more inclined to kind of look at it as like a positioning standpoint. I'm not as concerned about the cushion, um, as I am about being on a flat platform. Um, you know, I work for and, and run for ultra footwear, which makes a natural running shoe. You can get anything from a minimalist shoe, which is you know, we've got a shoe that's 3.9 ounces and you can crumple it up in a little ball and you can get some as, as highly stacked as like, I think the highest one right now is 32 millimeters. Um, so that's a pretty big platform, but it's all flat zero drop, um, with a foot shaped toe box. So it does help to kind of put your body in a natural position. And when you're talking about the number of steps you're taking running, you know, for a hundred miles or doing a training week of 15 to 20 hours, you know, that's a lot of steps to kind of add up if you're at even off a little bit in your mechanics. So, um, it's definitely something that I've, I've thought about cause I've always since the end of college been kind of a high volume runner and you definitely hear all the, you know, the, all the chatter about, Oh, you know, you're going to ruin your knees. Your hips are going to be bad. By the time you're 70, you're going to be waddling around, you know, that sort of thing. And it's like, um, I think a lot of that more is to do with, uh, you know, poor mechanics, poor, like not using your body properly when you are using it mm -hmm. yeah so i was just thinking it the mechanics is going to be definitely one thing to maintain your longevity and then when you were talking about changing your way of eating uh that you're not creating an, a chronic inflammatory response potentially and so and allowing your body to heal faster from the natural damage that has to happen when you run so far anyway um mm -hmm. i'm just wondering yeah if 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 you are taking actually a good protective mechanism that's going to give you that ability to keep running, you know, you're going to be that 80, 90 year old guy who's still able to run those massive distances and people are like, how does he do it? <laughs> I, I hope so. I think that would be, be pretty cool. You know, I think one thing, one thing I, I'll, I usually share that I think kind of sums up a bit what I do nutritionally or how I view carbohydrates. Cause it's kind of a weird, you know, thing you get, you have people who are like, you know, anti-carbohydrate they want to demonize carbohydrates and then you have folks who are like carbohydrates are, are the end-all be-all um and you know the way i look at them is uh you know they're they're a high octane fuel source i look at them the same way i would caffeine you know, if i would drink 10 cups of caffeine 10 cups of coffee a day you know i'd probably be shot out of a cannon for a few years but then eventually it's going to catch up to me so i look at carbohydrates the same way it's like i can use them strategically um at the right time and maximize my my workouts and my performance. Um, but if I can keep them kind of under that, that threshold of too much, you know, I can also kind of extend my longevity in the sports and, you know, hopefully longevity in general. Mm -hmm. So hydration wise, we touched on it a tiny bit earlier, but how do you handle hydration when you're running such long distances? Um, do, do you find that you, 
you drink more like a salty drink um, to to sustain you, or you don't need to drink that much when you're running so far? Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting because you know there's so many different environments. I've done races where it gets you know over a hundred degrees Fahrenheit. You know, and, and then races like this last one that I did where at the start it was 14 degrees Fahrenheit, which is well below freezing. Wow. Um, so, you know, your body, I think, is going to behave a lot differently from an environment like that to the other. So I tend to try to, like, I feel like if I have everything kind of in place nutritionally from a day-to-day standpoint, um, I can trust my body to let me know when I'm thirsty and kind of just drink to thirst more or less. Um, I'll, I'll do drink on an electrolyte solution. A lot of times when I'm racing, partly just cause I'm out there for so long, you know, I've, I feel like if I, if I were just, even if I were just doing like, like eating normally and doing a normal day's activity, I'd be taking in, you know, the different electrolytes, salt, um, magnesium, potassium. Uh, and so I'll put some of that in there, especially if it's hot out. Um, I use a product called hydro X by X endurance and I just, it's, it's a low calorie like electrolyte solution that I can just mix in with whatever I'm drinking at the time. And then just kind of sip at that to thirst. Mm-hmm. And I'm also just wondering, I've had a previous ultra distance runner, um, Camille Heron. Um, hopefully I said mm. her surname, right. And, um, so I saw she actually, I think she went through a rhabdo episode recently with the amount of training that she had done. That was a, a few months ago. Is that um, so? Rhabdo might might I'm not going to say the word right. Biolysis, I think. Yeah, but is that a thing in endurance runners too? Because you're just you're training so much. Because um, a lot of people think of it, you know, CrossFit got got pegged right. with that a while back. But um, yeah. endurance runners. I mean, I mean, I'm sure it's possible. Uh, I think it's probably incredibly rare. Uh, it, it it seemed like when the first person got rhabdo, all of a sudden we started seeing more and more people get it. So it's like, you don't know if it's like, Oh, my muscles are really, really broken down. I have rhabdo versus someone who actually went in and got checked and the doctor told them, yeah, you have rhabdo. Um, you know, I think there's probably both, both scenarios in place. Um, I, I, I didn't hear anything about Camille. I knew she was dinged up. I, I didn't know, hear anything about rhabdo, but that's, yeah, um, I think, I think I got it right. Just following her Twitter account. So, mm-hmm. that, and that was several months ago when she had to take a break. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to, I, I, I know there's been some scenarios where I think there was people who actually went in and got, got, uh, looked at and the doctor told them that they had rhabdo. Um, I'm not that concerned about that, um, uh, personally, um, I don't know. Maybe I just can't quite push hard enough to drive myself into that type of a. Well, uh, I think position. I think you push yourself hard enough in the breaking <laughs> records. <laughs> at a, but at it, miles. am I right though? With that, it's it's usually a combination of just like the the eccentric contraction coupled with like severe dehydration is what's going to kind of more often than not cause that. Yeah, maybe that's one of the pathophysiologies behind it. Um, dehydration and then just you, you're still exerting and your body's just trying to break down um, mm. protein. And then that's what why you you can't pee and then you end up peeing blood and the other issues I think that go with it. So, Yeah. Oof. No, I've, I felt pretty wrecked after races before, but I don't think I've ever been in a position where I was worried that that would have been the scenario. But yeah. it'd be interesting to look at because I'm sure we have enough um, data points now with the ultra runners that there's probably got to be a few people out there who've got some 
some uh, case studies for us. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, she she was interesting too when um, when I spoke with her because she, I mean, she's a Comrades Marathon winner and yeah. one of her secrets was actually drinking a beer near in the second half of a race to win. And that was yeah. the first time I've ever heard of that. It's like you're actually, you're running so far and you drink a whole bottle of beer. So, <laughs> have you ever tried that? You know, I haven't yet, but it's interesting because she's not the first or only person to have like, done some form of alcoholic beverage in the middle of a race and had said that it kind of like turned things around for them. And you, you wonder if it's just, if some of it is, is like, uh, just the state of mind. Cause I think like with ultra marathon running, the limitation is, is a lot more mental than maybe we even give it credit for. Uh, cause when you look at like, if you look at even my, what I guess I would consider one of my, if not my best performance I ran a hundred miles in 11 hours and 40 minutes, which was just a shade over seven minute mile pace. Um, so any one of those miles wasn't like this massive physical feat. Like they were all like kind of right in the window of an easy pace that I would do in training. So then it's like the question to me isn't as much a physiological one as it is like, well, how much can you kind of push your body once that kind of like, like low level dull pain sets in. And it seems like what ends up happening a lot of times is, you know, you'll get maybe 40 miles into a race and you're kind of in that position where it's no longer comfortable to be running. So then it's like, well, how long can you kind of like stave off that buzz in your head of like, Oh, you know, this doesn't feel good anymore. This isn't fun anymore. And then as the hours pile up, it gets increasingly difficult to kind of think past that. Um, so I wonder sometimes if something like that, like, you know, you, you have a beer or a shot of whiskey or something like that. And all of a sudden, like your mind kind of just like flips a switch and you're just like, all right, let's go. <laughs> but who knows? It's, uh, it's interesting. I'll, I'll have to maybe try it. I'll probably try it in the long run first, though, before I go out on a race course. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I did think the same, you know, there's probably some nutritional aspect, but as you said, it, it must be such a psychological when you're in that, especially in the second half of an event, it's your body could probably take you over. It's just your mind that that's mm -hmm. going to stop you. It sounds like. Yeah. And it's also, it, it's weird too. Cause like alcohol, I guess technically is a fourth macronutrient and from a, like a, the way it would actually behave, I guess, is it's going to metabolize quicker than sugar, but it's also like seven grams or seven kilocals per gram versus four. So it's like it, it, it operates quicker, but it brings a bigger punch. And clearly there's like, a margin of diminishing returns there. Cause if you get completely intoxicated, you're probably not going anywhere quick, but, um, it, it you wonder too, if it's like kind of like a bonk breaker or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that sort of ties in with, uh, professor Tim Noakes and he talks about bonking as actually it's the central governor effect. So it's, it's your brain. Mm -hmm. So your brain basically, you hit the wall because your brain just gives up, not that your muscles actually give up. Um, yeah. So maybe that, yeah, the alcohol is sort of a, a way to bypass the bonk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think if I remember right, uh, the first time Camille did that, I think she was, she was ready to drop out. And then, so she just had the beer thinking, okay, my day's over. And then after she drank it, she was like, you know what? Like I'm still technically in the lead. Let's get back out here. <laughs> um, yeah. but she'd have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's how that, how that came to be for her anyway. It was kind of a, uh, a trial and error situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. She's an amazing woman. Um, 
Supplements-wise, uh, do you find that you need to take anything for general well-being or even something so that um, you can perform better? Is there anything in that in the endurance world, supplements-wise, that people need to consider? Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't speak to the direct science behind the supplementation, but uh, for me personally, like um, I, I tend to err on the side of caution at least a little bit with that just cause I know what I'm putting my body through. And with some of this stuff, it's like, once you kind of create a deficit, sometimes it takes a lot longer than maybe you would like to kind of get things back to normal. Um, so I will take a, a multivitamin, not necessarily every day, but, um, you know, if I'm traveling a lot or something, I might bring it with me just to kind of keep things going. You know, I use a product called, uh, um, X endurance, that is, uh, they've got some like some double blind tests showing that it kind of helps with like recovery and things like that. Um, you know, fish oil stuff. If I haven't had a lot, I, I try to eat enough fish where I don't think that's a huge issue. But again, like if I'm traveling for a while, I'll, I'll take some omega three supplement type stuff too. And, um, yeah, nothing, nothing insane. I'm not putting down like 30 capsules of odds and ends or anything like that every day. Yeah. Um, so it, 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 that's another thing I think that's kind of hard to tease out, like where, where the science is with it versus where the marketing is with it. So, um, and we actually talked about this on one of our other podcasts where like when we're looking at supplementation, we're dealing with these tiny little dosages, like these milligrams versus like what we're actually eating, which we're looking at, like in terms of quantity, like, all, like ounces, pounds, or you know, kilograms even worth of, 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 uh, food mass during the day. So it seems to me like you'd want to get the bigger of those two in order first. And then kind of, if you're looking to optimize, or certainly if you're like deficient in something and you're seeing those levels return to normal by taking a supplement, it, it seems like it's probably something that's best done with some monitoring as well. So you can kind of get a good, a good idea of what's actually happening versus like, Oh, I took this pill and now I feel better. You know, that, mm. <laughs> that's where it gets a little goofy, I think. But. Yeah. <laughs> and that sort of ties in. Um, I, I had Zofia Clemens from the paleo medicina group from Hungary. And mm -hmm. I saw her share another post the other day again about how, when you, when you get, as you said, when you're getting your food source correct, how that changes all your micronutrients and macronutrients in your body. And, you know, with and versus having to take a multivitamin or supplement to to rectify the problem so get it from your food first and you'll you'll, you'll get that right versus having to take a supplement to to fix it yeah you know it almost it, it, it could it kind of seems like in the worst case scenario some of that stuff is almost like a band-aid where it's covering up a nutritional deficiency that should be addressed through your diet first and then kind of you i mean supplement right by definition it should be used as something to kind of like you know aid you along partly not to necessarily remedy a whole problem altogether. Mm -hmm. Electrostim, do you get, ever get into that kind of stuff for either recovery or for muscle enhancement, neurological enhancement? I, I haven't yet, but um, you know, maybe it's something I need to look into now that I feel like I got my nutrition stuff figured out. <laughs> yeah, I'm just wondering because um, you know, there are products out there that they promote it for muscle for muscle recovery after a big workout, um, mm -hmm. but it sounds like you don't. You found over the years you don't need to use something like that. No, I mean I've never. I mean I've never also really dove into it. So I guess for all I know, if I did, I'd recover a day quicker. But uh, <laughs> um, I haven't had. I guess maybe I've just been fortunate that from a injury standpoint and a recovery standpoint, I've 
typically been pretty robust. So like I haven't had to take a lot of downtime and usually for me, like in the, in the past when I would get injured, that's when I would start kind of looking at some of those more like tertiary recovery techniques, because at that point you're just trying, you find yourself with an extra couple hours a day cause you're not able to train. And then you're kind of hyper-focused on trying to get back as quick as you can. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it also makes you wonder like how much of that stuff is, is like a supplement too, in terms of, well, if you're, if you're making compromises on the dietary or the sleep side of things, here's kind of a, a bandaid to mask that for the time being, um, versus like, where does it fit in a, in a holistic manner or like, a when everything else is in line too. And, um, you know, some of that stuff, I'm sure there's probably some, some good, good advocacy for it. And there's people who are using it right. And then there's probably also marketing that is trying to kind of get it identified as something maybe a little greater than it actually is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you've always got to get the fundamentals, right? So diet, sleep, and all these other factors. Mm -hmm. Do you, for for you, stress management wise, I'm just looking again from inflammation or recovery point of view um, and psychologically, do you meditate at all? Do you do any, something like that um, to, to age or, your stress levels or just to quiet in your mind or do you love just having a busy mind all the time? Um, yeah, I don't do anything structured. Like I don't like black out like 15, 20 minutes a day and just say, okay, I'm going to meditate or anything like that. But, um, I guess maybe, maybe it's just a personality thing. I just, I don't tend to like let my mind go haywire 24 seven. I think I find myself drifting into kind of more or less a meditative state from time to time whether it be just like driving from one spot to another or, you know, like walking to the grocery store or something like that. So I'm very, I'm very aware of like when I've been kind of firing on all cylinders for a bit too long and need a break. And then I just tend to kind of, kind of relax and pick an activity that kind of puts me in a position like that. At least that's how I look at it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just thinking, cause that's one thing I, I love. And I ha- I'd love to go deeper into it um, with this podcast too. Mm-hmm. At some stage, is just the, the the recovery science, especially for athletes, and that's a whole field in itself. So we, you know, we we've been talking about how to get more performance, but there's the whole science of just the world of recovery, like post events, and how to make sure that your body actually heals itself mm-hmm. properly and you're ready for the next next push. Yeah, and you know, there's definitely people who are much more type A than I am, I suppose, who they cannot turn their brain off if they don't actually sit down and like kind of drive that process. I think, um, you know, they just seem to be their, their brain always seems to be going a hundred miles per hour. So (laughs) those, you know, those individuals are probably the first people to really see a lot of, a lot of benefit from like kind of a structured meditative I would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Zach, um, I mean, you've shared a ton of good tips. Is there anything particular that I maybe didn't get to ask you that's all, that you've always think, geez, I wish someone just asked me this, but because, uh, you know, I, I want to see people stop doing this mistake. Um, if there is anything that this is the time to say. Uh, I guess if, if we're looking at it from a nutritional side of things, I think the biggest mistake I see is you get someone who is a fairly like hard charging athlete and they uh, they either drop the approach in mid season and think it's going to kind of flip a switch right away and then they have a bad experience or they like give it a week and reala- and, and it doesn't set in um, and then on the other side of that spectrum I see some people that go okay here's the idea here's the idea 
I consult more people probably in this scenario where they come to me like I've been full on keto for one to two years. I'm training for an Ironman triathlon. Um, you know, I'm biking, running, swimming 10, 20 hours a week. And I just can't quite get keep up with people on the climbs. And they think I'm going to tell them to eliminate the little bit of carbohydrate they are eating, the 30 grams they are eating. And I say, well, let's, let's try bringing it up to 100 grams or 150 grams and see how that, how that works. So I think there's like, uh, I guess the, the overarching idea here is like be willing to be a little flexible with the approach from an individual side of things and find what does work for you rather than, you know, necessarily doing a kind of, kind of a plug and play setup. Well, that's a perfect intro for uh, the point where I usually ask now, are there any places that people can follow you or, you know, as it sounds like they could even connect with you for personal coaching? Yeah. Yeah. The easiest way to kind of connect to all my different platforms is just go to my website at zachbitter.com. That's Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. Um, I'm probably most active on Instagram and Twitter, but, uh, yeah, I coach, uh, if people are interested in like full scale ultra marathon coaching packages, I work with a group called Charmin ultra. Um, and then I also just do consults on either a one-time or regular basis for folks who are looking just to get some questions answered or to kind of take on a, a bit of a, a mentor, mentorship, mentor, mentoree, I guess, this relationship in terms of kind of how to structure their their training and or diet around kind of a high fat approach perfect well i mean hopefully after listening to your episode today people realize you're very knowledgeable and you've got lots of actionable tips which is again what i love uh, getting out of guests and you've shared tons of those today so thank you so much for doing that and for any listeners i'm going to be sharing all of those uh, links in the show description notes for you so uh, zach thank you so much for coming on for an episode again today yeah thanks a bunch for having me on it's been a lot of fun yeah.